Welcome to the Homeschool Mama Self-Care Podcast. I'm Teresa Wiedrich from CapturingTheCharmLife.com. If you are a homeschool mama challenged by doubt, not sure you can do this homeschool thing. If you're a homeschool mama challenged by overwhelm, there are just too many things to do. Or if you are a homeschool mama unsure that the way you're showing up in your homeschool isn't the way you want to be showing up in your homeschool, then this is the podcast for you. I'm here to encourage you in your homeschool journey to help you strategize ways to turn your homeschool challenges into your homeschool charms. So welcome, homeschool mama. Today, I get to introduce you to Julie Bogart. Or should I say reintroduce you? Because I previously interviewed her on season one and... Most people know who Julie Bogart is. She's the popular voice of common sense and compassion in the homeschool community. She's the creator of the innovative writing program called Brave Writer and the popular fast-growing practice called Poetry Tea Time. She home-educated her five children for 17 years, and they are now globe-trotting adults. Julie draws from her work with tens of thousands of homeschool families over the last 20-plus years, and her own homeschool journey to enrich the homeschool and parenting experience. Her writing program includes award-winning online writing classes and paradigm-shifting writing manuals that allow parents and kids to become allies in the writing process. Julie is also the author of the best-selling book, The Brave Learner, and host of the popular Brave Writer podcast. Her newest book, Raising Critical Thinkers, comes out in February 2022. Here's what we talk about. Julie and I'll talk about single parenting, working as homeschoolers, high school homeschooled kids, and homeschooled kids that want to go to high school, and the difference between the homeschooled kids that homeschool until about grade 8, grade 9, and homeschooled kids that high school homeschool. Okay. You got to just follow this conversation instead of try to follow what I just told you. It is a very engaging discussion on how homeschool high school kids are just a little bit different. We talk about agency versus independence, the power of who they are is actually under their control, and that's something that homeschooled kids gain as agency in their worlds before they're about grade eight, grade nine. We talk about what an education is anyway, and what is thinking anyway. Definitely, we're going to talk about her book, Raising Critical Thinkers, A Parent's Guide to Growing Wise Kids in the Digital Age. We talk about the three little pigs and how we can understand the three little pigs and the big bad wolf in a whole different perspective. There's a discussion on garbage trucks, COVID polarizing discussions, linear cognitive processes, poetry tea time and I think I might have officially started a new hashtag for Brave Writer, hashtag critical thinking coffee time. Okay, buckle up because this is going to be a very interesting conversation. Such a pleasure to have you back on the podcast. Welcome back. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. So for those that aren't familiar with you, will you give us a bit of a background on your homeschool experience and what you do today? Thanks. Yeah. So I raised five kids. Uh, I homeschooled them for 17 years. We did uh, some combination work in high school. So my oldest son did a little bit of 
public high school, hated it and quit. Then I had a daughter who did sort of a hybrid. She did a couple classes a, uh, a day at school and the rest at home. And then I have three kids who did varying amounts of full-time high school. We've had all different sorts of educational experiences, including co-ops and private tutoring and taking classes at uh, local organizations like Shakespeare and the Observatory. So we value all kinds of education in my family. Today, my kids are globetrotting adults. They live all over the world. They're all gainfully employed, which people always want to know. (laughs) (laughs) And then I run Brave Writer, which is our company that teaches uh, writing and language arts, as well as coaches, families in parenting, education, and being what we call awesome adults. Yes, and you do encourage us to do exactly that. Right. You have recently become a grandparent over the last year, year and a half, or two years? Just, yeah, almost two. It'll be two in January. And so you are, I'm told that it's actually better than parenting. Is that true, your experience? Yeah, the hyperbole is understatement. <laughs> Really? Love oh my it. gosh, it is so much better than I even dared imagine. I love it so much. And actually, um, I'm looking forward to more grandchildren coming next year. So yay! very excited. Yeah, yeah, very exciting. I think the reason grandparenting gets such a great rap and why it actually lives up to all of the things people say is that by the time you have that many more decades under your belt, so, you know, when you're having babies in your 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, but usually 20s and 30s, you just haven't been on the planet that long. These kids are actually somewhat close to you in age, really. But when you're heading towards 60, I mean, now these little people, you're like, oh, of course she would do that at age, you know, right. months, 13 months, four years old, because you just appreciate the distance of experience. I was at a high school football game last week. And I turned to my boyfriend and just started laughing. I said, these 16-year-olds think they know things. (laughs) They haven't even been on the planet for two decades. And we hold them so responsible for knowing things. So I think that's what grandparenting is. It's the capacity to appreciate how little they know. And therefore, we become delighted by them. We're not in forward to it. I don't want to rush any of my kids. My oldest is only 20. (laughs) But I must say, I have a 16-year-old, so thanks for the encouragement, because I sometimes, like this morning, need that reminder. Yeah, right. And with teens, they believe they know a lot. So everybody is not playing with full deck, <laughs> you know? <We're> just... <laughs> Good way to put that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you wrote the book, The Brave Learner, Finding Everyday Magic in Homeschool, Learning, and Life. And everybody loves it for a reason because of things like this. And I have quoted and requoted you here. Um, I've, I've written actually lots uh, about what you've written and I've actually included a passage in my own book because I appreciate what you share, but I want to share it with the listeners. You say homeschooling is a journey of courage into the unknown with an audacious belief that you'll be enough for your children. The ultimate brave learning adventure. It can't be any other way. Whatever you offer your kids, your best and your worst, they take it and turn it into fuel for their own blazing fires of blinding beauty. They astonish us every day, even as they terrify us too. You're doing it right if you stay connected and every now and then pause in awe. Look, those are my amazing human beings. So keep going. I'm rooting for you. I love that. Thank you. Yes. So good. And I, you know, we all need that because as much as there are so many beauties and charms in the homeschool life, there are 
as many challenges. And at least you can say that you come to really appreciate this lifestyle all the more because of the challenges you've had and you've learned to put it into perspective or reframe it. That passage is um, just a reflection of what I know about you, the encouragement. And that's why me and so many other people follow you and want to garner that encouragement to keep doing it. When I first was trying to end the book, you know, it's hard to know how to bring all your ideas to a close when you've written hundreds of pages. And I, I felt sort of weirdly uh, intimidated by the conclusion. Conclusions, um, when I was in high school, my teachers always said that I wrote a great paper until the last paragraph. I, <laughs> I Yeah, I, I'm uh, definitely a P on the Myers-Briggs. You know, I, I sort of like process. So drawing conclusions, challenging for me. And what I realized, uh, I just sat down one day and I just started free writing what it had all meant. I realized that's what I had not done yet in the book. And so those last few pages are almost exactly intact what I wrote, just sitting without thinking, just I'm going to just let myself let it all go. And when I got to that last paragraph, I didn't change it. That's literally what I wrote at the end of that free write. And I was crying. (laughs) And um, it almost makes me tear up right now because I think the piece that we're all looking for is a way to raise children where it will all go well Mm, and we won't have any regrets and we will have done it better and differently than our own parents. And what's true, in fact, is that it is both the mistakes our parents made and their positive choices that form the conscientious people we become. And why would that be different with our own children? It is not. And so having the courage to accept and own that we've both given them gifts and also burdened them with things they have to carry and process and work through to recognize that that is all what creates this blinding beauty in our children uh, is it's humbling, but it's necessary. It's the only path to liberation I know as a person. Yes, you can't do it right. There's no such thing as doing homeschool right. No, I think there is the same thing with parenting. You go into right. it. I don't know if you're like me. I read all the books and I of knew course. that I didn't, I didn't have the background for parenting or family life or anything. I knew that. So I thought if I just read all the books, then I'm golden. Exactly. And it turns out, not so much. <laughs> well, I think what happens is we don't factor in our own lack of experience. So we imagine that we can apply a standard or a rule, and if we follow it correctly, it will have an outcome. But anyone who works in any professional field, whether it's engineering or neurosurgery or anything, knows that there's a learning curve. You can understand principles perfectly and still not apply them accurately or to their best effect. You're also dealing with what I call the free radicals of other human beings who do not behave in predictable ways, whose moods, whose disposition, whose internal experience of their own subjectivity interplays with yours. And so there is no way to sort of screw things down and achieve a pain-free existence for yourself or your children. But what's amazing is that if you can kind of go on that ride, uh, you can see some amazing fruit and some of it will be because they chose to do it differently than you, just like right. you chose to do it differently than your own parents. Right. Yeah. Beautiful. Actually, I've been going through man's search for meaning again, not to go like oh. too, too superficial okay. right now. <laughs> <laughs> but there is, I've been challenged to question 
or answer the question. So does love conquer, conquer all does love conquer all. And that, and I believe it in my soul that it does. And I believe that there's some bigger, grander purpose to everything, but boy, I don't know what point I realized that there was no way that I was showing up perfectly as a parent, but I did. And now I still know it. But I, there was something that Sarah Susanka from the Not So Big Life had shared with me that if we are continuing to grow alongside our children, then the things that we did make as mistakes will not seem quite as grand as mistakes when we're fully accepting of it and allowing our kids to be accepting of their experience of it in the same way. And we're all growing together. Then it won't feel like it was this one thing we did wrong back in history. Then we'll just keep growing together forward. But certainly none of this is predictable and controllable. Like I initially thought. Agreed. And in fact, my mother, who's really just my role model in a thousand ways, Uh, She went through a divorce when I was in high school and it was messy in the sense that my dad had had an affair and he ended up marrying the woman and my mom and I moved out. So I was no longer living with my siblings and I had a lot of resentment towards his, you know, girlfriend who became his wife. And then even my mom's boyfriend who eventually became her husband. I was dealing with a lot of all that complexity and uh, I was my mom's ally. She relied on me way too much. She would tell you that today. And there was a point when I was about 30, where it all started backing up on me. Mm -hmm. I was suddenly angry at everyone. And to be fair, up until about age 16, I had what I deemed in my own journal, a perfect childhood. So Mm -hmm. I loved my childhood. I was raised well, but that divorce was so shocking and so out of character for what I thought my parents would ever do. I didn't know where to put it. So I aligned with my mother for all those years. But by the time I was 30, I started to resent that I had been relied on and I resented that it happened. And I had adult understanding of marriage that made me question things that I couldn't question at 16. And so I asked my mother to go to therapy with me so I could talk with her about all of these things. And of course, she happily went. The reason I even went to therapy is because my mother had been going to therapy and I knew that therapy was a valuable thing. And we worked through some of those issues. And at the end of that session, when we got home and she, we talked on the phone later and debriefed, she said, Julie, for as long as I'm alive, there is no time you cannot come to me with discontent or a bad memory or feelings about this divorce. I know it will continue to show up in your life in new ways as you get older, unanticipated ways. And when they do, I am here to hold space for whatever you say until I die. Oh, God, that's beautiful. And I'm telling you, it, it, it changed everything. Right. I rarely had to go to work, (laughs) you know, because the space is so enormous, right? right? It's so huge. And I knew in that moment, that's the kind of mother I wanted to be. Hmm. Beautiful. That kind of space. It's not that I can be the right mother, but Hmm. I can hold space for my children to be who they are. Uh, and that's hard work. I'm telling you, yes, these kids is. I have now, they're in their 20s and 30s. And you think teens are confusing? 20s are a whole other level. And I um, I have to return to that mantra for myself all the time. What's showing up, I want to create room for and be available for. When I was 30, I had a similar experience. I, mm. By 17 or 18, I knew that what was my childhood really wasn't healthy. But by 30, that was my time where I set down boundaries and earthquakes happened all around me in every single relationship. And I've been working 
I feel like I'm finally over the last few years at this place of, okay, I know who I am. Mm. Generally, we still always grow, but you know, I know who I am. I don't struggle with boundaries anymore. I don't even notice that sometimes it's happening that there's people wanting to boundary break because I just assume that, well, no, I wouldn't do that. Or, you know, I'm okay with that now, but I'm also aware that I had no sense of who I was until I was 30 because of all of that stuff beforehand. And so I've actually been told by a therapist once that 30 is sometimes the magic year for women to start discovering these things, but yeah, very interesting, but you know, you talk about awesome adulting. And since I last chatted with you, the very first thing I said to you was, I started this podcast because of you. And it's kind of creepy, but it's true. <laughs> All right, I love it. And I have evolved over the last year and a half. And I've got a lot clearer on why I'm here. And I want to do, in fact, I have followed you for so long, and, and so aware of the things that you say that I'm certain that some things seep into what I actually think and say. Um, I purposefully tried to say things in a way that are representing me that are very similar to what you already say. Um, anyways, I could go down a rabbit trail right there. But there's so many things that you have informally spoken into my world. Hmm. I'm still learning from you by just naturally engaging in your world. And I see how you engage your, um, or, you know, people that are listening to you and following you. And I see how you just show up in your life, like how you're trying to learn and grow and be a critical thinker. Mm. You're trying to be self-aware. And that is a huge, um, you know, there's so much learning in that, that I have gained from that and continue to gain from that. I have two thoughts, two questions I want to ask. One is how would you engage parents that are homeschooling, but also working and any advice you'd given that, but also I want to bridge into the discussion of your new book, which is all about critical thinking. Awesome. Yes. I'd love to talk about both Um, working and homeschooling. I have thoughts I definitely do. I occasionally get the question, how can I homeschool while I work full time? And I often say, I don't know if it's possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I mean, the truth of the matter is homeschooling requires participation from the parent. It requires a parent. There is no home education program that I would support that has a child working independently all day. All the time. uh, By themselves. Because even if you can disseminate the information and give them a list of activities or exercises to do, or even if they're in K-12 online, the richness of education comes through conversation. And there has to be a person who can have that conversation. So whether it is a school teacher in a classroom with a bunch of other students, or a parent who happens to eat lunch and dinner with this child, or there's an online community, that's what they need. They need dialogue because what we retain is what we say it's not just what we write or what we test it's how well we can develop that vocabulary internally and re-express it and that comes through conversation it would be like if a parent said to me I want my child to learn how to talk but there's no one home right I'm, I'm going to be working all day and there won't be anyone home but I'm, I'm hoping you know if I just leave the tv on <laughs> they'll learn to speak English I'll get something out of it, but Mm -hmm. it won't be as rich. It won't be as deep. And so for me to work with homeschooling means that you can fit homeschooling into your work life somehow. And there are strategies for that. Certainly I did that. So one of the key strategies for me 
is to work when my kids are sleeping. So when they were young and they got up early, the morning was not a good time for me to work. I had to work after they were in bed. And sometimes that meant working from, you know, eight till midnight, right? They go to bed at eight or go to bed at nine. I work till midnight. Um, as they got older and they were inching their way towards sleeping until noon. Well, now I got the mornings back. So I would just get up early and I would <laughs> the mornings and then we would start school at 10 or 11. Yeah. And I would have this nice chunk. Uh, I often would consecrate an hour or two late in the afternoon. So at a point where I'm willing for them to watch PBS or a video or play games that needs less supervision, I do have a preternatural ability to tune everything and everyone out. So I could be working at the kitchen table with my laptop open and everybody could be doing a million things and I, I could still work. Not yeah. all people and not all jobs allow for that. So get to know like the contours of your day, create predictable patterns that your kids yes. know about, make sure they know this is the time I'm working. I can't be interrupted except for blood, you know, or choking. Fire. Uh, I just said fire to my son. <laughs> one right. hour fire. That's right. Um, another option I used at one point in my freelance career, I hired my friend's 12 year old homeschool daughter to yeah. play with my kids downstairs one afternoon a week while I worked upstairs. So it was cheaper than getting a true babysitter. I was allowed to stay home. And if something happened or the toddler really needed to nurse or something, they could come upstairs and see me. So it was sort of a hybrid between babysitting and nannying, I guess. Uh, we could afford one afternoon a week. It was actually playtime for my kids. They never ever resented it. They looked forward to it because she was way more fun than I was. She was yeah. 12. <laughs> you know, she, she wanted to do all the stuff they wanted to do wholeheartedly. So those are some of the ways. Um, my husband at the time was actually really supportive. I used to take a Monday night a week at a library and he would sort of run herd on the kids. I'd book a room. Uh, and the joke was, I sometimes used it for work. Sometimes I used it for a nap. And other times I just used it to cry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes you just need a break and that would be where I took my break. So it, it varied over the years, depending on what stage of my career I was in. Um, and then I hired people and that helped too. You know, once I stopped being a solopreneur, that took some responsibilities off of me, which made it more possible to homeschool and run a business. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I know that you've been balancing that for a lot of years and for yes. a certain number of years, you even did that single. So oh, that for is sure. Oh yes. I mean, I would say 12, 15 years on my own. Yeah. Wow. So what yeah. do you say to the single parents that are like, there ain't no way that I'd be able to work. And oh, I mean, single on my business. No, as a single parent, I only did that. Not as long. It, I've only been divorced, what, 11, 12 years now, right. but, but I was a single parent homeschooling and running a business with staff members. And honestly, um, this, I mean, this might be more detailed than your audience needs to know, but the energy burst of being divorced was significant. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Speak on that. Yeah. So honestly, if you're in a draining relationship, everything's yeah. hard. When right. you get rid of the draining relationship, suddenly I had all this time and energy and focus and nobody bugging me. And I wasn't in fights and I wasn't crying. And right. I wasn't dealing with someone telling me that they needed me to go to bed right now because they want sex. I mean, all that was gone. It was yeah. great. <laughs> oh man, uh, bring it girlfriend. We need to do this every week. I love how you're <laughs> engaging. It's so matter of factly. Love it. Okay. So for me, 
that was a constant shifting of boundaries in my own relationship, like giant and boundaries is being gentle. So like huge shifts in boundaries over the course of time, which I also would consider a huge growth in me because it meant it called up something in me to be more me. But having said that, I mean, that has been a lot of work and uh, worth every effort, but it has been a lot of work more than what I thought I'd sign up for. Same thing with parenting, 100% more work than I thought I'd sign up for. But was there an easiness or an ease that there that accompanied the working with single parenting? Uh, Yes. So I would say this one, one thing for sure that was hard is we went from a two income family, suddenly I was a single income. So we were, I was dependent on my own income. And that sort of lit a fire under me too. Like, oh my gosh, I've got to make this happen. I've got kids going to college and more coming down the pike. So my motivation level to prioritize the business went up. Uh, I did homeschool for two years under those conditions. And then my kids went to high school. We decided right. that was the smart decision for all of us. One of my kids just wanted to do that. She was the youngest and felt like she was ready for that experience. My other child was not in favor of high school, but I asked him, are you going to be open to being homeschooled by me? Because if this is a fight, we're not doing it. And he really wasn't. I said, all right, well, then this is the option. So we made a deal. We made the deal that he did not have to get anything but C's. He didn't have to take any AP classes. He started with AP classes, and then we realized very quickly that he did not like school. So I said, all right, let's just compromise. Pass. Just pass. And let's get you done as quickly as possible. So he took summer school, and he did two and a half years and just got through it. And his reward was he graduated a semester early and then got to travel to Europe and see his brother and visit friends. And he was 18 and traveling by himself. So we found a way through that sort of journey. So all that to say, I definitely had a corresponding burst of energy, but I also had a significant, much bigger amount of responsibility. And it it generated its own complexity, right? My kids were dealing with divorce and spending weekends at their dad's. These were all new experiences and hard ones. But in terms of work, I really did. I really did have energy for it. I, for some reason, I guess I I needed it. I can go two different ways. One is I want to ask you about the scheduled grief moments you had in the afternoon. And then the other thing, because I actually spoke about it on a podcast a couple of weeks ago when somebody else was talking about scheduling grief. And the other thought is about high school students. And um, at least in the homeschool world, in large proportion, people are encouraged to, if you're homeschooling, then you will be a real homeschooler if you commit to high school. And in my experience, it was you and one other grown-up graduated homeschooler that told me when my child wanted to go to high school, like a public high school, and said to me, I would like to do this. And I said, "Uh, hell no, I'm a homeschool mom. This is what we do. I'm giving you the whole world. Why would you want to go there? What would you want to do that for? And you said it and she said it. This is their adventure. Yes. And and I understood. I came to understand. Now I've got two kids that have gone through high school, my first and third, or or that are going through high school. And my second wanted to full on homeschool as well. My third or fourth probably will full homeschool. We'll see. But I definitely learned from you and from this other friend that you got to let them do their thing. They will come into their own and realize what they want, or maybe they don't really know what they want, but they want to experience something. 
outside of what your notion of what a perfect homeschool world should look like. So exactly right. (laughs) Two thoughts. Where do you want to go with that? We can do them both, but let's stick with high school just for a, a moment longer since you just brought that up. I, I personally enjoyed high school, which helped me be open to my kids doing it. Okay. Uh, so a lot of parents look back and they didn't have a good high school experience. They remember experimenting with unsafe drugs or sexuality. They remember being bullied. They remember uh, eating disorders. They remember the school being dull. Yeah. I didn't have that experience. I was in theater. I had great friends. I had good teachers. I actually enjoyed the corporate collective experience of high school. So if you have negative memories, the only way through is to update what school is where you live, like actually go to the football games on Friday nights, go watch one of their theater productions, go to one of their concerts, see what the school experience is today where you are. You have raised homeschooled children. They are not the same as you having gone to 12 years of public school. They are kids who've learned how to learn who know the difference between a bullshit relationship and a good one, they are, they are not school kids. So when they go in, they bring this amazing toolkit with them. They understand what kids to respect, which kids are not worth their respect. They aren't peer driven in the same way that you might've been when you were that age. Uh, Yeah. And then the opportunities that school offers A lot of homeschool programs can't. You cannot produce a full-scale theater production on a stage with hanging lights in an orchestra as a homeschool parent. It it just doesn't happen. So for kids who have like sports ambition or they want to sing in the choir or they want to be in a play, high school does offer those collective performance opportunities. And my kids wanted to do some of those. Marching band, color guard, theater, choir, uh, concert band. That's the, you know, my one of my kids did the chess club, or it was the chess team, actually. So they have ways, right, of having a collective experience at that age that I couldn't give them. And that's what high school yeah. offered them. Do you know what I also see is that they are experiencing the world differently. They almost want to see the world outside of what I see. Totally. And, and I mean, we know that that's what they do. That's what that individuating thing is when they're in grade eight, grade nine, but they start going into that harder. And as the first time of a, you know, and teenager, you go, uh, please don't let me control everything. You're seeing yes. me here that you're seeing the world differently than me. And my firstborn definitely scared me that way too. And now I go, ah, uh, she's just looking at the world. She's just getting her perspective and gathering her ideas and the reality. Like we spoke in the beginning, they aren't us. Right. Yeah. Right. And in fact, you know, we have to remember that we've, given them a childhood that's weird. Yeah. And those kids are <laughs> really that. driven to yeah. experience what was normal. They yeah. want to be able to say that they know both worlds worlds. So the kids of mine that valued high school, three out of the five valued the public school experience. Two of them did not. The three who did feel like they're bilingual. Right. They love that feeling. Right. They're like, it's not like I doubled down on English and said, no, you can't learn Spanish. I literally said, yeah, English is our native tongue. But yeah, go learn Spanish. See what yeah. that's like. And then they come out 
And all the people they hang out with always say to them, wow, you're not like a homeschooler because you're not weird, right? That's the stereotype, (laughs) right? But they know both sides of it. So they have this sort of fluency in both worlds. Yeah. My two kids who didn't like school are the most interesting to me, though. The oldest one um, made really good friends with the cafeteria ladies. He literally hugged one of them every day. He also chose to sit in an audit, an AP psych class without grades. And that teacher adored him. And she ended up teaching three of my other kids. And she told me our family was the most interesting kid she had ever taught because they actually cared about the subject matter and asked the questions. So he sort of forged this, this way for kids who were homeschooled to come in and like do their own thing. And, and he treated adults like they were interesting, not like they were resort authorities to resist. Right. Other son who also didn't like high school and he's the one who had to do more of it. Noah actually quit, but Liam continued. Liam made good friends with the British literature teacher who was never his teacher. And he ate lunch with her and they read short stories (laughs) and discussed them. And guess what? I never knew until graduation that he did that. The, The teacher comes up, Mrs. Day, she gives him a big hug. And I'm like, who are you? Mrs. Day, I'm like, were you his teacher? No, no. He just came and ate lunch with me. We would discuss short <laughs> story. And I was like, how do I not know about her? He's like, it happened at school. I don't know. I didn't think to tell you. <laughs> They're weird. Our homeschool kids are weird. <laughs> okay. Well, my child edits this podcast, so I don't know that I can agree with you. <laughs> They're weird in the best ways. So when I say okay. that, what I'm saying is they are bringing, I know, but I mean, it yeah. is worth pointing out because they're tired of being told all the time that they're weird. Right. But, but what I mean by that, honestly, and, and I mean it as a full compliment, the power of who they are is under their control. Right. A way that Amen. a lot of teens yeah. never experience until they're full grown adults. So they have this agency that they sometimes don't even realize is so natural to them that others don't have. Right. So my son, Jacob, who thought homeschooling was ruining his life and wanted to go to public school to get a better education. Right. <laughs> a couple of years and he suddenly saw, oh, school scripts everything. I want to take longer to write this paper. I want to do more research and they won't let me. Yes. I see. Right. So yeah. that's what I'm saying. They have this awareness. Yeah. And is it independence? Okay. You know what? I want to hear about your story about the grief and you scheduling the grief, but then I'm going to feed you into the other direction of self-awareness because okay. I think you called or you were encouraged to title the book, uh, critical thinking. You were going to use the critical yes. thinking, but your instinct was to use self-awareness. That's right. And I like the self-awareness too, but I know why they like critical thinking. But so that really plays into why our kids become what they are. Absolutely. Okay, so let's do the self-awareness. So part of what makes our kids so interesting to everyone in the world that they meet, even the ones who have, you know, sort of social issues, like maybe they've got Asperger's or ASD, you know, maybe they were homeschooled for learning disability or whatever, What they have by the time they're in eighth grade, if they've been homeschooled, is agency. Yeah. Um, You mentioned the word independence, and a lot of parents want independence, but what I think they really mean is agency. I don't think they mean independence. Yeah, you're right, actually. Yeah. Independence can be dangerous. You can be independent from your parents and doing drugs. That's not agency. That's just making an independent decision that might be bad for you. 
Yeah. Agency is the self-awareness to know what works for you, what doesn't, what's ethical, what isn't, what's moral, what's immoral, what will advance my goals and what will steer me away from them. Agency is the belief that my life is under my control. And if I need help, I'm going to go get it. I'm not just going to be so confirmed in my independence that I can't ask a teacher to help me write a paper. Right. Agency is saying, I got to write this paper, really struggling. My teacher is an expert. I know I'll ask for help. That's agency. Independence is, I don't need your help. You know, screw you if I do it this way and you don't like it. I was being independent. That's not the same thing. Right. What we're suffering from in our own culture really is a, a, a barrenness, a bankruptcy of agency and far too much independence. Uh, what we really want is to know our limits. We I want think to I need to absorb that again. Can you say that again? Because yeah. that speaks to my soul right now. <laughs> it really does. I'm like, oh, yes. Okay. So say that again. All right. So I think it's a bankruptcy of agency, not independence. Independence would have us think that we can operate solo, that an individual decision for me is adequate and everybody needs to respect it because I'm an individual who made an independent decision. Agency is the ability to make any decision, whether it relies on other people or it includes only yourself. So it takes into account individuality and community dynamics. It takes into account my limits and also my talents or my skills or my area of expertise. So what we're really looking for is a person who actually knows themselves, is self-aware. Right. Yeah, I don't know enough about this to make that decision. So I'm not going to make it. That's agency. Independence might be, well, I don't know enough, but they're expecting me to make this decision. So I'll just make it. Go to Facebook school. Right. Right. And that's what we see on display among adults all the time, let alone our kids. What homeschooling showed me with my own children was that power of Mm self-knowledge, how well they understood themselves. I mean, when Noah, my oldest, says this method of education doesn't work for me, Mm -hmm. it's not because he's lazy. Mm -hmm. He's actually experienced education that works for him. So when he's in a system where it doesn't work for him, it's really brave to say so and stand by that assessment and not allow other people to shame him for not liking traditional school. And as homeschool parents, we tend we tend to listen to those messages. I want to say we tend we want to. Sometimes we, we do. To. Okay. Yes, we want to. Um, I will say with the oldest child, you don't trust it as easily. And there is a lot of messaging that tells you, well, he doesn't want to go to school or do this work or finish this project because of laziness, Mm -hmm. right? And sometimes that is exactly what's manifesting. It looks like laziness. But what a child who is being empowered to know themselves better could discern from that is, why do I suddenly feel lazy when I'm writing an essay and don't when I'm trying to beat a level in Halo? Right. What is that? What is that difference? And that's the kind of conversation you can have with a homeschooled child or a child who is safe enough to tell you the truth. Right. You know, you're not going to punish them for letting them express to you what their truth is. And then you're going to problem solve with them. So when Liam said to me, gosh, I took all these AP classes because I know I'm smart, 
but frankly, I don't like them and I don't like my teachers. And so I'm not getting good grades. I was like, all right, let's step back. Let's think about what the goal of these next three years actually is. What is the goal? What is the education? Yeah. That's right. And once we came up with a goal, we agreed with both of us, we could come up with a strategy and I could relax. Um, And so that's why I was like, yeah, just get C's. All you have to do is pass because the college you want to go to doesn't take grades. So why are we striving? It's pointless. I always point people to um, educato is the root word for education. Um, It's Latin because I'm a homeschool mom. So I did do that for a number of years. Um, Actually, my oldest daughter, who I unschooled fully, is doing Latin in her. She's in her third year. So classic. The one that didn't want me to do school in a certain way. Very much sounds like you're Noah. Um, But anyways, she she. so Latin, educato. yes, educato, which means to raise up. And so I'm always speaking on ah. like, what's the point? It's raising up, but raising up what? The education system? Um, like ah. what construct are we trying to create here? Is it about the child, the specific child, not your children, but your specific child? What's the goal there? Yes. And, and the reality is we don't have a closed book on that child either. You know, I think I wrote on it actually today on Instagram. There was an aspect that I said, okay, you're getting to paint. Um, you're getting to paint on a canvas for their life and you get to use different techniques and different colors and different whatever modality you want. And you make a mistake, you go back, you color it over, you do something different. And at about the age of 18 or 19 or something, they're officially capable of making their independent choices and then they can take over all of the techniques and all of the colors and whatnot they're probably asserting about the age of 11 12 13 starting to want to take the paintbrush but nonetheless you don't get to figure out what the picture is in the end you don't get to decide how everything is produced you don't even know what the picture is going to be you get to participate in the process but you're ultimately raising up a specific child. So what's the goal for the education? What's the point behind it? That's right. I mean, that's exactly, that's beautifully expressed. I think it takes a lot of trust Yeah. because we are inundated every day with the message that there's a certain quantity of information that a child is supposed to have been exposed to and mastered in order to be allowed to go to college. Yeah. And college seems to be this big gatekeeper of a future. What I discovered because of homeschooling is the wide variety of university and college experiences that exist. And right. some that don't even require any traditional educational um, outcome in order yeah. to attend them. Uh, and and there is, there's this notion that the information itself is the education. Right. But as you're saying, if we talk about raising up, what our kids are learning isn't always the information. They're learning a method. They're learning, oh, history is discrete answers. And I would argue, no, it's not. So all these classes teaching us discrete answers are actually undermining a good history education. So we want to actually reevaluate what that education is supposed to do for a child. What is it supposed to achieve? If the real goal is just to check boxes so that you can apply to go to a certain school, and this seems like the most efficient way to get there, admit that. Just admit it. But that doesn't mean you need to shame all other students in America to doing that same method, because there are other ways to get a meaningful education that leads to a great outcome. Um, You know, when you were saying about raising up individual children, and you gave that illustration of the painting, my youngest daughter, 
has a, a crack up. I just love her. If you think about it, it's a very highly verbal family of seven. She's the youngest. People who love reading and talking and writing and thinking. And she's trying to just keep up with all these older, you know, too many parents, right? Her own parents plus uh-huh. five siblings or whatever, four siblings. So at the time that she decided to go off to high school, she made a declaration to me. And she said, you cannot know my grades. You have homeschooled me through eighth grade and you've never given me a grade and you say you don't care about them. So I cannot have you start caring about them now. Yeah. I was like, oh, that's kind of logical. I think I will go with that. Yeah. So from ninth grade all the way through the end of college, I never saw a single grade. I did Uh not know she made the honor roll in college until I went to graduation and there was an asterisk next to her name. And it was an interesting experience after four other kids to not know her grades. And what it, what it showed me is that the pedagogy really was the thing in our relationship. She prevented me from shifting. It was interesting to talk to her about what she was learning. It was interesting to hear about her class. It was interesting to be included in the ideas. I never once had to weight myself with the additional burden of transitioning to a conventional approach. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Is, are these things that you speak about in your new book? So some of it, definitely. So the key ideas in the upcoming book, Raising Critical Thinkers, are focused on helping us recognize all of the subjectivity that is a part of the way we think and a part of the way our kids think. So one of the first things that I um, uh, help parents imagine or think about is how often our children receive information without even asking the question, says who? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, What? what authority, what credibility. One of the um, ways that I begin is I talk about the story of the three little pigs. And if I were to ask you, who would you say is the protagonist in that story of the three little pigs? Protagonist. Yeah, that's a yeah, good That would be like the main, the main, yeah, main, yeah. main character. That's a good question. I don't know, because it's like you have a universal. Don't you have a universal? There you go. The most common way that we tell the story is from an omniscient storyteller. There's some kind of storyteller that's invisible to us who's relating a story about these three little pigs and this big bad wolf, right? So that's exactly right. And because we've heard it told that way over and over again, we assume that is the story Uh and that the details of that story are accurate. Well, there was a day when Noah was three and he, every day we did this story and he'd have to huff and puff and blow the house <laughs> every single day, every walk we went on. We went to the library and John Sieska's book, The True Story of the Three Little Pigs was on the shelf. Oh. So I checked it out, brought it home, read it to him. And it's from the Big Bad Wolf's point of view. Oh. He goes through and says that the whole reason that, that it's been a complete miscarriage of justice so basically, he had just wanted to borrow a cup of sugar to bake a birthday cake for his grandmother. And he went to the first house and he just happened to have a terrible cold. And he, it, he sneezed and it fell over. And the, the force of his sneeze was so powerful, it killed the pig. And he couldn't just leave all of the ham go to waste. So he ate it. And then that happened at the second house. And then at the third house, by then, the other pig had caught on to him, called the police. And he gets arrested for his misdeeds. And from his jail cell, he says, that's it. That's the true story. I was framed. So in his view, 
This is a miscarriage of justice. That is good. Noah thought that was the most amazing story. Well, why? Why did he think it was funny? Did he believe the, the wolf's perspective? For some reason, he did not. So we have to start asking the question, when that story is being told now from the wolf's perspective, why are we so disinclined to accept it? Right away. That, that story is so good on so many levels. I want to call my husband right now and tell him. About this. Like it, it speaks in so many different ways. It's so it good. It does a million different ways. And of course, we have to recognize too that repetition creates the impression of truth. Yes. We have to look at all the ways we've ever heard about wolves, which is yeah. big and bad pretty much all the time. So they're not trustworthy. Of course, John Sieska, the author is a humorist. So I knew he was going to be funny. Who was the person reading the book with Noah? Me. So I acted as the controlling lens, right? But what if, what if we had read and only ever heard the wolf's perspective of the story over and over from an omniscient storyteller perspective? Yeah. And And one day we came up with the true story and it was from the pig's perspective. How does that alter the way we engage with that information? Right. And that's a fairy tale. Yeah. So imagine how much more complicated it gets the second that you go into a historical event or a social experiment or any of the other things that we must confront in our lives. So we start with really just evaluating our own reactivity and our prejudgments. I talk um, in the book about something I call silent films. These are the unspoken, unbidden images that populate your mind the moment anyone calls up a word. So I'm going to do an experiment with you. Okay. Um, If I say to you a garbage truck, what do you think about? The city, because I'm very rural and I never see them. Okay. (laughs) Have you seen a garbage truck? Oh yeah. I lived in the city. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the garbage truck. What what Uh, associations do you have with it? uh, People are well-dressed. They have a lot of coverage so they don't have to touch stuff. Usually there's a smell. Usually there's high noise, lots of grating kind of noises. Hmm. Uh, People get out of the way when they see them. Yeah. So garbage trucks for us, are somewhat unseemly, right? They get away from them. They're dressed to protect. The smell is awful. It's a job we think, I mean, who wants that job? But people do it. That's kind of how we think. Yeah. The word garbage, it's what we throw away. It's what we don't like. It's what we're trying to separate from. What do you think of when you hear the word sanitation? Mm-hmm, exactly opposite. I actually, my, my first visual is when we were in rural Africa for the first time, and we're sanitizing our water and we're taking creek water and spending eight hours sitting in front of the sun because we're at an equatorial space. And so we would sit it in the sun and wait for it to be cleaned. And then we would boil it and then we put it in That's water. Right. That's what I think of. And that was, that was a hell of a lot of work for water. But it, right. was, it was a beautiful process that helped me consume water. So if we call the truck that gets rid of our garbage, our excess, a sanitation truck, does that convey a different experience of what that is? So language like garbage and sanitation call up unspoken. You just have a visceral reaction. Sanitation, you immediately felt cleaner. I even watched your body language. You sat up straight. It was amazing. You went from (laughs) like leaning back and hunched shoulders to like... Oh, sanitation. Right. So when we're talking about critical thinking and when we're talking about education, 
we're trying to make the invisible visible. So it's not just information laden. It's what we do with the information that shapes how we share the world that we have. And the reason for some of these decisions, for instance, around language, like a sanitation worker versus a garbage man, two very different things. Worker allows a more wide array of types of people, could be women, could be men, could be non-binary. When we say garbage, we're sort of talking about people we don't want to do anything with. When we say sanitation, we see them as guarding a value that's Uh really important to the preservation of our people. So this is the kind of work that I'm helping kids do and parents do in the book. And we've got tons of activities that are like actually delight driven, right? Like we play with grammar, we play with words, we play with magnifying glasses, all kinds of things that help you start to come out of the assumptions that just unconsciously govern us. What's really cool is home educators as a group are already used to challenging the status right. quo. They've already yeah. used their minds to reconsider, you know, what does school mean? Yeah. I've watched homeschoolers. It's so funny. I, I've been at this since the 80s. Um, the first homeschoolers I ever met were in 1984. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard the word home and school, the word that really got prioritized in my imagination was school. Uh-huh. School is important. Home isn't. And then, you know, fast forward 40 years later, and I'm like, home, home is the important word. School is sort of the background word. And it's because of experience and re-education and thoughtfulness and reworking in my own imagination what those mm-hmm. words mean. That's what yeah. critical thinking is. It's that capacity to do that work. So tell me why you think it's important for homeschool parents to go- grapple with that. Because one of the problems for everybody, and it's especially true when you choose to go against the status quo, is you can become ideological really fast, where you just move from one set of beliefs to the countervailing view, and then you just lock down on it like it's ironclad and it will never ever need to be subjected to any revision of understanding. All thinking is of a moment. All thinking. There, nothing less. Einstein showed us that nothing less. We didn't even have the digit for zero for centuries and we did math. So if you think about what thinking actually is, it's responsive to the moment. It dialogues with the past and it anticipates a future, but it's of a moment. And so part of the goal for a home educator has to be transcending this compulsion to think that education is the amassing of information. And instead, having the power to actually take that information and transform it into something meaningful and useful. I often say, I I love this about Charlotte Mason, where she says that we're in a great conversation where we're Mm -hmm. taking the ideas of the past and we're dialoguing them with them right now in the present to create something beautiful for the future. Right. So I often say if, if what we're learning doesn't better humankind, what is the point yeah. Even if you get a chemistry yeah. degree and use it to improve the recipe for shampoo, you yeah. are contributing to the betterment of humankind. Right. That is the transcendent goal of education. Yes. And that only right. happens if you can generate insight and don't just rehash and redo what everybody before you did. It's official. We're calling you a homeschool philosopher. (laughs) It'll go down in history. So what do you want homeschool parents to take from this in their actual practical world? You already were, by the way. I refer to certain people as the great (laughs) Jays. John Holt, John Taylor, 
no, John Holt, John Taylor Gatto, and Julie Bogard. Oh and my God! I've got Judy on Arnell on that list too. And so then I say the homeschool philosophers. This is this is deep stuff, but it's it people is. That challenges and us. It, it it is, and honestly, my anxiety is that people will be like, "I like poetry and cookies. I don't want to talk about critical thinking." <laughs> yeah. Well, you and started that too, poetry. I did, did. <laughs> but I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, the Brave Learner is a very cozy book. I worked really hard to make sure that this upcoming book is very readable and very relatable. So here's the practical side of all this. How many of us right now are locked in battles in our own families over COVID? Literally everybody. I know. Literally everyone. Everybody. Why? Why can't we have conversations around things where we disagree? It's because I've got an answer. I think it's fear. Yes, but fear only comes if you believe there is one right answer. So I'll give you one more freebie from my book. This will help you. So think about the fact that all of us grow up with sort of this wonderful imagination. We are amazed by the world. And by the time we hit sixth grade, they have measured it. Now it's gone. If you go to school, it will be gone by sixth grade. Do you want to know why? Because of test taking, because of the multiple choice (laughs) testing. Because we are training students to believe that the right answers live in an answer key or a teacher or a school board and not in deeper thinking. So when we look at a multiple choice test, for instance, if I were to ask you, um, let's say I'm holding up an iron and it's not plugged into the wall and I ask you to decide, is it, and it's, it's a white iron, to name the adjective that goes with iron, is it blue? Is it iron? Is it hot or is it cold? Which one do you think is the right answer that goes with iron? That's an adjective. It's hot because it's a flat iron and it'll flatten my hair. <laughs> okay. I'm thinking. But what if it's not plugged into the wall? Oh, uh, then it's cold. Yeah. But do you see what you came up with? That is the right answer in almost any test. But a more nuanced thinker, and you're not looking at it. So, you know, you did what I wanted you to do. So just know that. Um But a more nuanced thinker, someone who's a little more patient, a little slower, taking in more information about this iron might think hot because we've been trained to think irons are hot, but might look at that and say, you know what? It's not plugged in. It can't be hot. Even though we think of irons function as being about heat, this iron is cold. I'm going to pick cold, but here's what happens. We aren't trained that way. We are trained in multiple choice testing. There's a right, there's a wrong. There's a right and wrong and under time pressure. Right. So you cannot spend the time because if you do, you won't finish the test. So what we're actually being trained to do is identify the most stereotypical, most likely answer that the test taker had in mind under pressure without considering any distracting factors. That's what ideology is. Ideology boils itself down to one right answer. And we've been so trained by it now that we actually think on Facebook, if I say a right answer from my authority, everyone will have to agree. And then we're shocked when they don't, because I just showed you the facts. Well, it doesn't work that way because one, we're not in a time test where there's one source of authority we all agree on. But secondly, we literally cannot come to a consensus on one single answer because of all the factors that I talk about. So what we're trying to do is raise human beings who can be more nimble, more supple in their thinking, 
who can take in a wider, wider field of information, who can imagine ethical implications, personal relational implications, who are willing to both hold a position strongly and imagine that the person next to them who holds the opposite one right. has an internal logic story that coheres for them, that makes sense right. for them. And is, that doesn't make them an evil person. Yeah. That's the stuff I care about. Hashtag create critical thinking coffee time <laughs> instead of poetry tea time. There, run with that. <laughs> okay, coffee time is a great idea. Because it's time to start cool. feeding kids coffee. Or at least their parents. But yeah, it's it's all that kind of stuff. And we actually have active I have activities in there for grammar, for math, for writing, for uh reading books. It's oh, good. Wow. It's it's incredibly oriented towards education. It is not a political theory book. It's not about solving the great political divide in America. But yeah. the side effect will be for many adults, oh, oh, that's why I think the way I do. Well, that, that's why my brother thinks the way he right. does. It's going to be like that. So for me and other people I do know that the whole COVID discussion and the polarizing who believes what, um, it has forced me to say, do I love you or do I want to be right? And ah. so then the goal is, okay, I love you. I'm not going to just, you know, decide not to be related to you because of something. So I love you. I don't see the world the same way. And the more important thing is that. And then asking, okay, and why do you see it that way? And that's, that's very eye-opening. And just like you said, it actually influences everything. It's not just one relationship, but it's how you frame everything that's going on around you. So yeah, this is a huge homeschool philosophy approach, but this is, as you're saying, it's very practical. You're putting feet on the ground for homeschool parents to explore. How do I do this in all of these different subject areas as well? Oh, absolutely. And it's for parents who are not homeschooling as well. This book absolutely leaps, leapfrogs out of homeschool. It's just parenting in general. But really, I think the reason that my publisher was particularly excited about it is the moment that we're in. There are a lot of books out there for adults, like Think Again by um, Adam Grant is a phenomenal one. He does a great job of analyzing that. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, that's also a phenomenal book. Those books, though, are coming from sort of the um, research and studies at a PhD level written for adults. My book is like, well, how do we do that with an eight-year-old? Like, what is that with an eight-year-old? And it will help you parent. Because right now, when you have a conflict of understanding, you have a child who never wants to take a bath, and you're like trying to influence it with your hygienic story, you know, that's the same as trying to tell a vaxxer that you're a non-vaxxer or vice versa, right? It's, it's using the wrong information to have influence. Right. So we actually want to understand like what is the substance of somebody's belief structure so we can engage with it meaningfully and not just argue about it. That is beautiful. And I'm excited for you. You studied a very influential topic at a very interesting time. Yeah. So what's really great is when you actually work through all of the ideas and you start thinking about thinking, you can't help but examine your own thinking. That's the whole key. And uh, someone asked me, you know, like, when did you get interested in this? I think I've always been interested. I think I grew up interested. I've always been um, really... You know, I'm a secret university professor hiding in uh, the body of a home birthing, homeschooling mother. Uh, it, <laughs> it, yeah, 
if I, if I could have done it over, I probably would have gotten my PhD and worked at a university. But I'm kind of glad that didn't happen. And mostly because I think what I hope I bring that's different and what I really worked so hard to do in this book is to make things applicable and practical for regular people. Uh, a lot of the books I read are never going to be read by the general population. They get stuck at the university conference level. And really, that's not helpful. It's helpful eventually in the dissemination as it comes down through education. But like, we need help today with our kids. We want to understand our relations today, our siblings who we argue with. So yeah, I guess the moment is pretty urgent and it feels really important to me. It's not about giving up your beliefs. It's about actually understanding why you have them. And if you can understand why you have them, you can understand why other people have them. And right. once you share that kind of fundamental harmony between you, uh, we we can look at the implications of our beliefs better with right. a lot more humanity between us and less of this fighting. So last time we chatted, we talked about your legacy and what your intention is. And you said that you wanted the voice of the student to be the priority, which is your base intention behind Brave Writer and uh, prioritizing connections you talk about in Brave Learner, learning to write a process of discovering what one wants to say. Whoa, and that is the truth. That is my experience as a writer. And I started when I was seven or something. And it, it has helped me really determine what I really believe. Now I, I hear the focus that you've got is, okay, let's infuse homeschool parents and their children with considering how you're thinking, how you're thinking about thinking. And I think you are the homeschool professor in our homes that are truly getting us to think about how we're engaging our kids before our kids ever enter post-secondary school, or if they even ever enter post-secondary school. And that, that's a huge impact. So have you shifted in your, your thoughts about what your legacy is or what you want to leave homeschool parents with? I think what you said still stands because I think it's the same. I, I think it's just a fuller expression of the same thing. We have a voice insofar as we know our own thoughts. Um, otherwise we're an echo right and to be an echo is to narrate really well what other people have already thought about now all of us are drawing from the huge stream of ideas that we did not originate I don't original thinking is sort of a weird oxymoron for me because all thinking is interconnected and it goes back through history and it will go forward from after I die so I'm not looking for original thinking as in unique thinking mm -hmm. but the experience of generating an insight that connects all the pieces that fires inside of you to me is one of the most magical human experiences you can have. We experience it when we're moved during music. You know, we're listening to our favorite band. I was a huge YouTube fan. So going to a YouTube concert for me yeah. was like better than church, right? It was mm -hmm. like this euphoric experience and it was combined with the meaning I was generating from the words that had an interplay with all of the things going on in my own life. And I would feel transcendent for a moment. It's the same feeling you have when you first discover that this option to homeschool, for example, is the one you're going to take. How did you get there? It was through reading and patient reconsidering of ideas that you had always held. And then you birth the insight. And the insight literally fuels your energy and your imagined future. 
That's why this stuff matters. That's what it means to have a voice. It is the capacity to transform yourself over and over throughout your lifetime to experience the the zest and thrill of knowing your own mind and discovering that there are things in your own mind you didn't even know you could know. 100%. You know, last year I was speaking to you about what you were reading and you said you were reading or listening to an audio version of Toni Morrison's Beloved. Oh. And I know it's a gorgeous book. And the irony that you just said something, her, my favorite quote from her book is freeing yourself was one thing, claiming ownership over that freed self was another. And that, that just ties in so closely to what you Oh, just- perfect. I mean, Tony, like I, I, yes. In fact, I quote Tony Morrison in this book. Is that right? Yes. And um, she literally says that the key question for education is what can I do where I am? Mm-hmm. What can I do where I am? To me, that is the mission. We are trying to learn what we can do where we are that leads to the transformation of life on the planet. And it can be tiny ways. Like I said, changing the formula for, um, you know, shampoo, it can be big ways. You go to the GATT treaty and renegotiate, you know, international policies, right? There's, there's no scale for these things because absolutely each person is essential to the project, but it is the capacity to, again, know yourself Mm -hmm. and have a voice and know what you're contributing that advances the next thing. And so when she says this about being a freed self versus owning that freed self, it's one thing to have an education. It's another thing to know what to do with one. It's the huh, same thing. So beautiful. Oh, we could just keep talking. We really could. I could keep talking. I want to hear what you're reading now. Are you reading something light? I know the book's going to come out. Is it in January that book's coming out? It comes out February 1st. February 1st. Um, I am, I, yes, I'm reading Unbound by Tarana Burke. Not exactly um, <laughs> like reading. Okay. Tarana Burke is the founder of the Me Too movement. So she is oh. talking about <laughs> sexual uh, exploitation of women. So yeah, not a light book, but um, beautifully written. Really good book. Okay, we're going to have to send you something light. I'm not a good light book reader, although um, I do like uh, children's literature. And a lot of times I will find myself reading the books that we are recommending in Brave Writer just to keep up with what the audience is reading. Skunk and Badger is adorable. And we are loving that book right now this month. (laughs) Oh, excellent. You all have amazing book lists. Absolutely. Beautiful books. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you again. And, you know, to the contributions that you enable all the homeschool parents out there to feel confident in their choices and to really own their voices Mm -hmm. and to go down that poetry tea time thing and just enjoy their kids and really explore learning. But now also really exploring how they think about thinking and how they're thinking and hashtag critical thinking coffee time. I thank you for all of this. (laughs) Thank you, Teresa. This was really fun. It's a fun conversation, different than any of the ones I've ever had. So I appreciate it. I would love to learn more about who you are. So introduce yourself at the Homeschool Mama self-care Instagram page or the Facebook group, the Homeschool Mama support group, so we can support and encourage each other in our homeschool challenges. While you're there, you can check out my book of homeschool encouragement, Homeschool Mama Self-Care, nurturing the nurturer. If you're a homeschool mama looking for a mentoring group to gain clarity, confidence, and vision in your homeschool, 
to create a plan to nurture the nurturer and be intentional in how you show up in your homeschool. Ask me about the Homeschool Mama Retreat. All the show notes and links to this episode will be found at www.capturingthecharmlife.com. Until next time, I hope you and your kids have a charmed week, or if you're having one of those weeks, I hope you can reframe your challenges into your homeschool charms.